Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word and let us see what you'd have us to see from this. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to be starting on verse 9. Last time we met, we talked about the Passover. And we're going to be taking the second of the three feasts that all the males in Israel were mandatory to go to the temple on. So starting at verse 9, seven weeks shall you number unto you, beginning the number of seven weeks from such time as you begin to put the sickle to the corn, and you shall keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand, which you shall give unto the Lord your God according as the Lord your God has blessed you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the Levite that is within your gate and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you and in the place which the Lord your God has chosen to place his name there. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in Egypt and you shall observe to do these statutes. So he's talking about, we know this, uh, it's called the, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And when the disciples were in the upper room, baptized by the Holy Spirit, this was the feast that they were observing at that particular time. And so we look at this, and it follows. You've got Passover. You've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows Passover. And then you've got First Fruits, which is the first Sunday after, after Passover. So, and then you have Pentecost, and those are together, those four feasts make up what's called the spring feasts. And Jesus fulfilled every one of those feasts when he was here. He died on as the Passover lamb. He was buried during unleavened bread. He rose again on first fruits, and then the Holy Spirit came, and the church was officially started on the day of Pentecost. So we have the... the the first four of the feast, seven feasts of the Jews all fulfilled in that first coming of Jesus. And many scholars, myself included, believe that Jesus will be returning and, and doing and the seventh and the second coming and the and uh, his uh, millennial kingdom and all will be part of the fall feast, which are just we're going to talk about one of them today so but we look at this and it says seven weeks after Passover and seven is the number for completion or new beginnings sometimes people will say or the completion and so because Jesus God started the world in seven days and seven is a very big number in the scriptures and and usually talks about the completion of something uh, so here we have seven sevens, as a matter of fact, or 49 days, and that leads to Pentecost, which is penta, which is five, in this case, 50. So you have after Passover, 50 days later, you have Pentecost. And so this is what he's saying, seven weeks, and it comes in the harvest time, so it's also part of a harvest uh, time. And it says that you will... 
Keep the Feast of Weeks, in verse 10, unto the Lord your God with a tribute of freewill offering of your hands, which you shall give unto the Lord according as the Lord has blessed you. So that first harvest they were to give generously back to God. Also in the, in this, in the Old Testament, if you remember, they were to give the first fruits harvest. The first, first of what they uh, sowed off the field was to be given back to God, which is a very interesting thing because the first fruit is usually the best crop that you get and you don't know that you're going to have another one thereafter. You usually do, but you're not guaranteed it. So God was saying, give me the first. And this is something he tells us all the time. With the tithe, he says, give me your tithes and offerings and I will bless you. And we want to be very sure that God, all through the scripture says, he wants the best. He wants the best. And this is why I, I practice this and I teach people to practice this. When you give your offering or you plan on giving a tithe, you give God your tithe first. Because the times, that I, the times in my life where I tried to do, the, do it with the leftover, there never was a leftover. <laughs> it never, never seemed to be a leftover. If I didn't make him priority in my life, there was no leftover. If I made him priority in my life, the money usually stretched further and the bills got paid anyway. But God says, give me the first. Give me the best. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when they were talking about the tithes and offerings. The tithes and offerings went to the Levites and the Levites gave a tithe of what, what they received and gave to the, to the priest and the priest tithed to the high priest. So that they, each, each group got a smaller and smaller group you know, from a large group got, got a significant amount. But by the time it got to the top, the high priest got the best of everything that was, that was there because everybody's supposed to give the best. And so God's saying, I want the best. Do we honor him with the best? And he says here, give liberally from what God has given you. But most of this is important to understand that we understand that God is what, who gives it to us. And then I've met many people who go, well, I worked real hard for my, for my money. And well, who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the strength to work? Who gave you the, the ability to learn how to do it? God did, ultimately. And without God, God could change us in a heartbeat. He could have us lose a job. He could take away our health. We could do any number of things to take away our ability to make the money in the first place. And his blessings are great. When, when people tithe, it's amazing to, to listen to their testimonies about how God blesses them in return. And the studies show that the poor people tend to tithe and the rich do not tithe. And at first I thought that was really strange, but then I got thinking about it. Well, a tithe to a poor person is only about, you know, maybe 50 bucks or something the whole month, maybe 100 bucks if they, you know, or 200 bucks if they make quite a, you know, uh, if they're right on the edge. The, the rich person can make can make that be, that be their tithe in a, for a week or even for a couple days. And if they're, if they're, especially if they're in like the three digits, the six digit figures, and they're making 10,000 or so a, a month, and all of a sudden their tithe is a, is $1,000. And that's a lot of money when you first look at it. If you're not looking at it on a percentage basis, it looks like a lot of money. And it's, and it's something we need to keep in mind that God is asking us to just honor him joyfully and that's what it says here. Give according to the Lord as he has blessed you. And that's to show thanks. 
God wants us to be thankful in our giving to him. He wants us to be thankful in our service. I've met people who serve God and yet they're grumbling about every moment of the time they're serving God because they're doing it out of what they feel an obligation rather than to be thankful. And God is saying, be giving me this out of your, because I've blessed you. And that's a big difference in it. Paul said God loves a cheerful giver or a hilarious giver in the, in the Greek. And that's, you know, this is something that is supposed to be there. If you're giving God your, your, your money and you're kind of holding on to it real tight and just barely letting go of it, that's not the way he wants to be given. Hilarious? Yeah, it means hilarious, cheerful. It means much more than just cheerful. It's, it's somebody who is really just can't look forward, you know, is looking extremely forward to it, not just being cheerful, but it is hilarious. He's, he's wanting somebody who's like, God, I am so glad I'm giving this to you. And almost with that laughter in it, you know, I just can't wait to give this to God. And, uh, and God is saying he wants that attitude for us. He wants that attitude with us from our, our finances. He wants that attitude from us from our service. You know, and I teach people, I really believe God wants a tithe of your time as well as just your physical stuff. You know, I really believe that God wants 2.4 hours of our day and, and 15, uh, 16.8 hours a, a week. I really do believe he's wanting us to give him our time as well as just our money. Because money's almost easy to give away compared to time. When it comes to giving your time to God, that's a little harder for us to do. And if we're reading our Bible and praying, that should take up a, an hour or so of each, of each day. And then, you know, spending time meditating on him, concentrating on him, serving him. And that doesn't mean we sit there and we, we mark our little clock. Okay, God, I gave you 15 minutes here. I gave you 15 minutes here. I gave you, okay, God, I hit my 2.5. Oh, God, you owe, me, you owe me 10 minutes tomorrow. <laughs> You know, uh, that's not quite the way God wants us thinking. Uh, he's wanting us to joyfully give him our time. And believe me, I've seen both sides of the coin in, in service for people. People who are just serving God because they feel the obligation. Uh, God, I'm here, but I really don't want to be. But I really feel I've got to give it to you. And God is not looking for that kind of obedience. He wants obedience that is cheerful and loving toward him, not because we're getting anything from him, not because it's going to be rewarded, but just because we love him so much, we want to serve him and uh, give him give him of our funds. And then it says, and the Lord, and verse 11, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservants, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord has chosen to place his name. Jesus, uh, God says, this is a feast. God likes feasts. It's quite obvious that God likes feasts, but his feasts all have a purpose. The feast of the Passover. Have a good time, enjoy yourselves, but remember what you're celebrating was the deliverance of the people. And here he's going to tell them, you're celebrating that you're no longer bond, your servants in bondage. And he says, you know, I love this. You, your whole family, basically, any of the Levites that are in your, in your gates, strangers or aliens, visitors in the land, and the fatherless and the widows. He's saying everybody is to celebrate. And if they can't afford to celebrate, you bring them into your own house and you celebrate with them. And 
God is saying, and this is one of the things, and it says, and you will do this in the place that the Lord your God shall place his name. Now we know that that's going to become Jerusalem, and three times a year, all the males have to go to Jerusalem, and we'll see that later on in this. And these are the feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and then we're going to get to Tabernacle. And it was the feast that the men were supposed to return. And he says, the reason for this celebration is that you shall remember that you were bondmen in Egypt and that you shall observe to do these statutes. Pentecost for the Christians is when the Holy Spirit fell upon us and we were delivered from the slavery of sin into the service and, and church of God. So we see the same picture for the church. Pentecost, the Spirit comes in, the church starts. We're removed from, removed from the world and placed into God's family and kingdom in a, in a more literal way than just our salvation. And so this is that picture, the Pentecost, the birth of the church, the deliverance of us from bondage. And this is something we want to keep in mind. We, get, we come to Christ, we become saved. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer bonds, uh, in, in bondage to sin. God has delivered us from it, put us in the family of God, put us in the church, and says, you are my children. You're no longer bond servants to the world and slavery. The sad thing is so many Christians live as if they're still servants to the world because they're not getting into God's word. They don't understand who they are in Christ. They don't understand so much and they stay in bondage to the world and don't change the way they think. And this is one of the things I keep bringing up to us. We need to get in God's word so much that our thinking becomes totally changed. When we start hearing certain things, we, our mind goes to what does God say about it, not what does the world say about it. When we hear somebody say well, they're living together, our first thought isn't, oh, well, that's okay, but everybody does it like the world says. It is, that's fornication, that's sin, you're living in sin. Now, are we going to judge them and go after them for it? Maybe, maybe not, depending on how well we know them. But we want to recognize that when they're living in sin, we want to keep that, that or sins are happening, we want that to click into our mind. This is what God says about this. And not just say, be like the world, oh, that's okay. And the world does this on many, many sin issues. And the sad things, there are many Christians that will say, well, that's okay, there's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal to sin. But it's between them and God, obviously, but it is a big deal that they're sinning and they may need to be told that it is sin because the world is not telling them it's sin. And the really sad thing is we've got so many people in the church living in sin that don't think twice about the living in sin. So we need to keep this in mind. God is wanting a pure people. And he, need, and he wants us to get into his word and they listen to the Holy Spirit and respond to the Holy Spirit. And this celebration was a celebration of the harvest. Verse 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days after you have gathered in the corn and your wine and you shall rejoice in the feast, you and your sons and your daughters and your manservants and your maidservants and the Levites and the changers and the fatherless and the widows that are within your gate. Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast unto the Lord your God in the place which the Lord has chosen, because the Lord your God shall bless you in your increase and in all the works of your hands, therefore you shall surely rejoice. Now the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration, or you know, I shouldn't say celebration, it's more of a remembrance 
of the wandering in the wilderness. And what they would do when they practiced this is all the men would go to Jerusalem and they would build these uh, little lean-to hut things all over, the, all over Jerusalem and they would live in those uh, little tents or lean-tos. Uh, sometimes if you've gone by a Jewish community during the Feast of Tabernacle, you will see tents and stuff sitting out in their backyard and they basically move out of the house into the tent for seven days. Uh, sometimes they will cook and eat inside during the daytime and sleep in the tent at night. Uh, but it's supposed to be built in a certain way and they've got a lot of rules on how they build it and they have to be able to see through the, through the slats and see the stars and, and basically it is that whole idea of remember what, what, what your fa fathers did as they wandered in the wilderness and they were encamped for 40 years in the wilderness. And that's what it's a remembrance of. And it starts out as a very solemn occasion that they just remember the pain of wandering around the wilderness. And then on the seventh day, they get to have a big celebration. And it is one of their bigger feast celebration days. And they have great big, what we would call parties, <laughs> and food and, and, and everything as they praise God. Why? Not because of the wandering in the wilderness, but because God brought them into the promised land. All these things were designed for them to remember their history. We do it in America with the 4th of July. It's supposed to be a day of remembering the founding of our country. Now, very few people actually do anything with remembering the founding of our country on 4th of July anymore. But that was the purpose of the 4th of July, or is the purpose of the 4th of July holiday. And these, are, these holidays for them had the same impact for them. They were supposed to remember what has God done for you? Now, this started with Passover. God delivered you out of Egypt. Goes to first fruits. God delivered you from your bondage. Uh, excuse me, uh, Feast of Weeks or, or uh, Pentecost. <coughs> then it followed up with the tabernacle of God bringing you out of the wilderness into the promised land. All of these things were to help them remember their history. And God says, I want you to do these. And you're to do these and have and include the widows and the orphans. God cared for widows and orphans all through the scriptures. He made provisions for the widows and orphans that when you plow, uh, reaped your harvest in your field, you didn't go back over the field and pick up everything that fell. You left the corners of your fields un unharvested, unharvested so that the poor could go in and work. God's plan for taking care of the poor were that they got up and did some work. <laughs> okay? Not, not, big, not hard work. It's not too hard to go pick the, pick the, you know, the fruit or the vegetables off the, off the field that were missed. But it was still work. People got to keep their self-respect. They got to keep their honor by going out and doing something for what they were given. And our day and age, people are just given stuff for no reason whatsoever. And then we wonder why they get lazier. Well, we've, we've destroyed their self-respect. We've destroyed their work ethic by giving them. And people tend to want to, most people, not all, but people tend to, if you're going to give it to them, they'll, keep, they'll hold their hand out all day for you to give to them. Mm -hmm. 
And God understood that, and he made provisions for the poor and the needy by providing the farmers would leave, leave food out. These feast days where they were to invite the, the people who were poor and into their, into their festivals and their, and, their, and their activities. And God says, you're going to take care of them. And you'll notice when we go through the book of Psalms how God says, the fatherless, uh, the, the widows and the fatherless, you're to take care of. And God hears their cries. And this is something people need to be you know, concerned with at times, that God hears the cry of the oppressed. And he does respond eventually. <laughs> Sometimes people think they're getting away by oppressing the, the poor and the, and, the, and the weak. But God is going to make them pay eventually. And if we're just patient, it happens. But patience is not an easy virtue, as we many of us know real well. Uh, nobody likes to wait. Nobody likes to, to be patient. And God says, just be patient. I've got a good, you know, I've got a plan. And we've got to remember that anything on the, that happens on this earth, as far as God is concerned, is a short time. You know, we've been waiting for Jesus for almost 2,000 years, but for, from an eternal God's perspective, it's still been a very short time. And we've got to keep that in mind. He has a plan that covers the entire uh, history of earth, and we are just a small part of that plan no matter how long we live. Even if we were to live a thousand years, we're only a, smart, a small part of his long-term plan. And we don't live anywhere close to a thousand years. He has a plan. He knows what's going on. And he will recompense people what they deserve. He do, he's not going to let them get away with it. And here he's saying, remember, remember. And this is something I stress with us. We need to remember what God has done for us and for Christianity in general. I think one of the saddest things for Christians is there's so too, too few Christians who know anything about the history of the church. These are people that we read and these are the people that we know the New Testament books from because we look at who did they quote from. If they didn't quote from them, then they either didn't believe the book or it didn't exist in their day. So we look at what did, what did the first and second century people quote from to figure out what the New Testament was. And when they looked to put the canon together, that's how they put, one of the ways they put it together. Did the early church fathers quote from that book? You know, we're talking about people who were the first generation that were trained by the apostles who then trained their next generation while it was still very fresh in people's minds. So we want to be able to understand. And the sad thing is we're doing it even in America. Most Americans don't know the history from the early, early, uh, founding of our country. Well, they wrote about things in the Bible. They, they would write, just like Paul and them did, they wrote letters. They were pastors who wrote down memoirs, and they would quote from various books and epistles, uh, the letters and the epistles, and if they didn't quote from them, they, they would not be included in, they did not get included in the scriptures, because they were the ones, John would say, these, you know, John taught this guy how to, you know, what to, what to believe and who, who, who he quoted from, so he would quote from the same people. So it was that process on it. They were close to the original, close enough to the original that they knew what was valid. And many of the books that people try to say belong in the Bible were written close to 350, 400 A.D., long after the Bible had even been totally put together 
There's books that use apostles' names, okay? The book according to Thomas, the book according to Mary. You know, there's a, uh, all these different books out there, and they're after, they're really late as far as getting, being of any use for, for Bible sources, and their message is contrary to what the Bible teaches. When you hear people say, well, there's lots of books that got ignored, no, there's not. <laughs> They're all much older than the Bible's canon was already determined long before these books were even written. So don't let people kind of snowball you and, and try to make you think that uh, you know, there's all these books that didn't happen. This is where the Da Vinci Code came out of. You know, these, these many books that were, spoke, that were purposely left out of the Bible. Well, no, they weren't left, purposely left out of the Bible. They weren't even written when the canon was determined. You know, there, we look at this and we need to study, we need to know things so that we can defend when people attack. And not because that we need to defend, but we also need to know for ourselves. When somebody comes and says, there's all these books that weren't included, we need to know that, well, they weren't included because they weren't written at the right time. The whole Bible put together would have been about 200 AD. But even at that time, they had already determined what books belonged in it just because of use. Gutenberg made the first press and the first book he made was a Bible. And that, that made the Bible Gutenberg, the Gutenberg Press. He, made, he, was, he invented the printing press. And that's when the Bible actually started becoming cheap enough for the average person to be able to afford a Bible. Because you gotta think, when the Bible was handwritten, before the Gutenberg Press, the only ones that had libraries and books in them were the very, very wealthy. Because they, you know, figure the Bible, how long do you think it would be take you to hand write out the entire Bible? It took a year or so to put together a Bible. The Gutenberg was, was, press was invented in 1450. And so once the press started producing books, the price of books went down. Not drastically at first, but it went down. You might be, at that point after 1450 be able to find a Bible in your church. For a long time, people did not have Bibles in their home. And they did not, and many times a pastor would not even have a Bible because it was too expensive to purchase a Bible. They might have bits and pieces of it. They'd have some that they'd copied. And this was the way for many, many generations. Plus the fact that the church until Luther came around did not even let you have a Bible. Most Catholic churches had a Latin Bible, if they were lucky, in the church. It was, and many of them couldn't because they couldn't read Latin. <laughs> Even they couldn't read Latin. And they would get their messages from, from the Vatican. The Vatican would, would, would ship out their messages for the year or a quarter or a year in a book. And they would read, read these messages out of it. And they may or may not have a scripture in them. I bring all this up because it is relatively recent that Bibles have been in people's homes and maybe the 1600s you started seeing it uh, the first American Congress actually printed Bibles for every United States citizen because they knew how important morals and Christianity was so they printed out a Bible and gave them to the citizens so we had that period of time when Americans had Bibles in their house and so this has been a issue all along and it is so important that we get into God's Word and the saddest stat out there is that the Bible is the, mo the best-selling book and the least-read book. 
almost everybody has a Bible and very few people read it. And what's even sadder is how few Christians read their Bibles. And this is a scary thing to me. Uh, I've met many, many Christians who have never read the Bible in its entirety, have never read the book of Habakkuk, never read the book of Nahum, and have never read Micah. Powerful books. There are so many people that have never read all of their Bible. And we look at it and say, what are you reading? Very little. <laughs> they read their favorite stories. At Christmas time, they'll read the Christmas story. And I understand that most people start at the beginning of the Bible. They read Genesis, very quick and easy book to read. They get to Exodus, still a very exciting book to read. They hit Leviticus, and they maybe trudge their way through Leviticus if they're really disciplined. Then they hit Numbers. <laughs> and, and the first part of Numbers is hard to read. It's understandable why people stop. They get into... They, you get into First Chronicles, and your first eight chapters is a, is a genealogy. You, know, you get into Matthew, and you get right into immediately right into a whole bunch of names that don't mean anything to you. I understand why people will stop, but there's other things in there. And, it, and as I've said when I preach on something from the genealogy, I love the genealogies. I think they're fun to read and study because there's so much information in there when you start matching names up and, and everything. But I know I'm a nut, so it's fine. I understand that. Uh, but I love I loved the genealogies because there's so much information that you get out of them. But I love all of the Word of God. <laughs> Very important for us to really study God's Word because we need to think the way He does on things. When we, when we are studying His Word, when we get to know Him, when we're challenged by issues in life, the verses come back to us. We look at what Jesus did when He was tempted in the wilderness after the 40 days of fasting. Every time Satan attacked him, he came back with, this is what God says. This is what God says. This is what God says. It's important for us to know when, when we're tempted with telling just a little lie, we come back with, you shall not bear false witness. You shall tell the truth. You know, that from Deuteronomy where he defines truth as telling everything that is correct. We, we get tempted to fall into a, to a, an adulterous or, or a fornication affair, and we go, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit fornication. You know, we go back and say, this is what God says. And very important, we're tempted to gossip. We go back into Proverbs where it says, these seven things God hates, and gossip is one of them. <laughs> you know, the more we fill our mind with God's thoughts, the more we can defend ourselves from the attacks of the enemy and from ourselves. Because most of us have never been tempted by Satan or even the demons probably. We've been tempted by our own lust. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is three problems that we have. Satan just likes to, to send somebody to, you know, a demon to prick them every once in a while to, to tempt us. But we do a good enough job of sinning on our own without any help whatsoever. And so we have plenty of problems in and of our own selves to be fallen to sin. We don't need any help, and yet we get it. <laughs> but they are to have this for the tabernacles in verse 15. Seven days you should keep a solemn feast of the Lord in, this, in, the, in the place that God, your Lord God, shall choose, because the Lord... Your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands. Therefore, you shall surely rejoice. Yes? Yeah, there's that word proportion again. 
set uh, an amount, a percentage, or did everyone just uh, determine their own uh, proportion uh, to the way they, that they were blessed? Blessing all your income. What, what is your save? Because I don't see portion. Oh, well, I'm, uh, I'm up at 17. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord God has blessed you. Okay. In King James, it says, is evil. We haven't got there yet, but yeah, <coughs> is able. So yeah, you, you chose how much you wanted to honor God with. But that was up to you. Mm-hmm. There, there actually were some, some rules that the legalists, you know, the Pharisees and scribes would later on come up with and the rabbis would come up with. Uh, you know, usually at least 10% was supposed to be given the tithe and they would all sometimes come up to as much as 33%. But pretty much it's what you wanted to give. How much am I going to trust God? How much am I going to be the one that trusts God to keep and bless? Is able. Is able. Which is a little stronger than portion, even. What verse is that? We're not even there yet. It was 17. Yeah. So, but God is saying to deliver to Him what you want to give because it is a free will offering. God is saying, how much do you trust me? How much do you love me? I was listening to one of the speakers on there was quoting one of the guys that gave lots of money. And he goes, if God could bless the 10% that I gave to him, he was sure that God would bless the 90% and give him plenty of money to live on with 10%. And he was more elegant than that, but I just it really stuck in my mind that the guy was saying that God is going to bless any amount that you give and allow you to be supported. And I think this is true. There's a there's this adage out there that goes, you can't outgive God. And it's not really a scriptural verse, but it is a principle in God that whatever we give to God, He's just He He will pour back on us. And if we're stingily giving Him the small amount, God, this is all I can afford to give you, then God will say, Okay, let me stingily give back to you. <laughs> Uh, God, I am just, I am just really, I just want to dump this on you. And God says, okay, well, here, have a big, big dump truck load back. And this isn't necessarily a promise, but it does say that God is going to meet all of our needs, no matter how much we give. I listen to one pastor says that he gives 100%, so I don't know how he lives, but, but so. Yeah, well, that's Micah. Micah says, "Test me, and I will give back." In uh, Proverbs three, it says, uh, uh, "Give to the Lord, and, and so shall uh, so shall your barns be filled with plenty, and your presses shall be burst forth with new wine." God, all through the Scriptures, challenges us to give, and so I agree with him. We cannot outgive God. There are plenty of verses that give that principle that we really can't outgive God. Yeah. Yeah. He will make sure, if we're given to him, he's going to make sure that we don't suffer for giving to him. And one of the pastors I listened to this afternoon on the way home said to, that when we serve God, we need to look at it that we get to serve God. Do we really realize the privilege it is to serve God? Probably none of us really understand it completely. Some, some understand it better than others. But you know, God could have just said, okay, you're saved, come home, and I'll use the angels to save the next person. 
But he didn't. He uses us to serve him. And we get to serve him and, and do what he wants. Can you imagine if people got hold of that principle, what would change? God, I, I get to serve you? I love serving God. I always have loved to serve God in whatever way I can. And you know, I've, in many churches, I've done so much and never even thought I was doing that much because I was just doing things I enjoyed doing. I was just serving God and having fun. And yet people would go, you do so much, you do so much. And I'm going, I don't do that much. I, but and then I found out that I do sometimes. But how much are we giving to God? Are we looking at it as a real struggle to serve him? Do I re regret the times I serve him? And I hear this a lot of times when people go, well, you just don't know how many hours I work. Well, I, I can understand you probably work a lot of hours. I used to work a lot of hours as a manager and still teach Sunday school and all the other stuff that I used to, would do. How do we do it? We carve time out for what we want to do. And I've said this over and over. There are many people that won't come to church for anything. They just don't have enough time to church. But if somebody gives them tickets to the sport that they like, whatever sport it might be, you can almost guarantee they're going to find time <laughs> to, go to, that, to go to that event that they were given. Here, here's tickets to the Super Bowl. But he's not going to leave you whether you do something or not do something. But the key to even that idea is we need to look at ourselves to say, am I really, do I know God? Paul encouraged people, he says, examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. Because it would be very easy to, for a short time, seem like you're in the faith. And I've seen, and I've mentioned this, I've seen people who've gone to Bible college and become pastors and been pastors for a few years and all of a sudden they just decide God isn't anything and walk totally away. They were never in the faith even though they looked like they were for a period of time. We need to look at ourselves and say, do I truly know God? And one of the things that is a key to this is all through the Old, especially New Testament, it says those who do these things and the tense is always and continuously do these things will not enter heaven. If somebody can go out and have, live in adultery or fornication and never feel convicted and never have any problems with it, they need to look at their life and say, am I, am I one of God's children? If they can live in homosexuality and never be convicted of it, of it being a sin, they need to look at their life and say, am I really truly one of God's children? If they were saved, they can go into sin, but they're going to be convicted of the wrongness of it. They cannot go in and enjoy it. You'd have number two things. Were they really saved? And we can't judge that. Then the next question is, are they being convicted in their sin and in their lifestyle now? Even if they're doing it, are they being under conviction? And again, we can't judge. And this is why we need to be careful because we can't judge people's position. I can't look at somebody and say, this person is absolutely definitely saved. Now, having said that, the spirit within me will, will be drawn to the spirit in you. And there are people that I am 99% sure are saved. Okay, just because the spirit draws me to them and, and everything. You can't, you can't lose your salvation, but the question will always be, did you ever have it? Because remember, Jesus says that in that last day, there will be many that say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And it goes and lists a whole bunch of very spiritual 
activities. I visited the poor. I went to the prison. I, I, I fed, you know, I clothed the, the, and, but again, it goes down to the two things. Were they really saved, which we don't know. Okay, because there's going to be lots of people. And I've given the testimony of that one woman that everybody who looked at her would have swore that she was saved. And yet when you asked her, her testimony was, I've always been better than everybody I know. When did you recognize you were a sinner and needed a savior? I've always been better than everybody I know. She came to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, special meetings, women's meetings. You looked at her life and you would have swore that this is one of the best Christians you've ever, ever met until you got to know some of her other, other areas. But, but her attitude was she did not need a savior. Okay, so looking at somebody is hard to tell whether they're saved or not because we really can't know. Again, our spirit, the Holy Spirit will register with some people, and there's just some people you know that you get to know them, and you go, this person really knows God. They've got the spirit, and if they were to fall away, I would be extremely surprised. There's other people I meet, I'm going, well, they name in the name of Christ. They seem to be okay, but there's just not that connection that's there between the spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not. It's discernment. It's, it doesn't mean that they're not. It's just... There's no way I would be able to say from the discernment that God's given me that this person is saved. But it seems like if a person, like you say, was truly saved, they were in their 20s just saying they've been a Christian all their life and then changed their lifestyle, if they... Again, I, we don't know whether they're being convicted or not. The scripture is very clear. Right. The scripture is very clear. If somebody is living continuously in a sinful lifestyle then they don't know God. All right? And that's just, it's not that they lost their salvation. They never knew him. They might have been the seed that sprung up and got choked out by the weeds. They might have been the seed that sprung up and dried up because of the cares of this world. But they never truly knew him. They never got to a point where they got saved. You know, saved. And, and they had a mental, they might have had a mental ascent that he was, that, he, that Jesus lived and died and maybe even rose again, but they don't truly have the faith and the belief system. But now this may sound weird. Like even, okay, now, I'm just saying, because I was wondering, you know, if, there's, if they're both living together and married, the, what do we want to call them? And then they figure, well, we're going to get saved. We're going to say we believe in God and this and that. We want to be saved. Would, could they get saved? Mm-hmm. Living in sin? Yeah. Well, so they, well, they could. They could, but then they yeah. should... They should then formalize the relationship and, and, and make it right because they are living in a sinful lifestyle. Again, this gets you into whole areas that are hard to understand, hard to figure out. The one thing we know is that God gives us eternal life. When we have eternal life, we are saved. Now, but he's also very clear that if somebody is living in sin continuously, they're not entering heaven. So... Basically, he's saying that a, a sinner, a, a saved person cannot continuously live in that sin. And I know that for a fact in my life, I cannot sin and not be convicted. Doesn't mean I won't sin. Doesn't mean I won't repeat the sin. It just means that when I do, I get convicted and the Holy Spirit saying, you've done wrong, get right. Uh, so again, you have somebody who maybe got saved when they were young and now they're living in a sinful lifestyle. I don't know, number one, whether the first one even real, and if it was, then they were living under conviction and they're being miserable living in the lifestyle that they're living in. See, 
So. Right. So this is this is an area, and this is always the thing that people bring up. Well, if they're saved and they're living in sin, then how can they be saved? And it's all of this really comes down to the person and God, because God knows your heart, and He knows how you're responding to His conviction, and whether you're feeling the conviction, or if you ever got saved. And you know, this is why I've had people go, "Do you think I'm saved?" And I go, "It doesn't matter what I think. It's what do you think? Do you know?" the God of the universe? Are you in a personal relationship with him? It's not just I have a bunch of knowledge about him. It's not that I come to church every time the doors are open. It's not that I read, even read my Bible consistently. It's am I in a personal relationship with the God of the universe? Because that's what Christianity is all about. He buys us out of the slave market. He makes us his child and dwells in us in a personal relationship. And so this is why it is important for us to look at ourselves and say, what is it? Where Am I saved? And this is why I say we need to put markers in our life. And this is when God did this. This is when God did this. This is when God did this. And it wouldn't hurt to put it down on paper or on a computer or however you, however you use to do it. So that when, when Satan attacks and tries to make you feel miserable, you go, uh-uh. I know that I'm a Christian, and I know that he's my father because he did this, he did this, he did this. Uh, Abraham did it. Uh, God told the, the, the uh, Israelites to remember these things that he did. God wants us to remember the positive things about him. And the crazy thing is, we usually forget the good things that God does for us and remember the bad things. And we're supposed to forget the bad things and remember the good things. <coughs> And yet we do it exactly the opposite. We remember the bad things in our life real well and we forget the good things that God does. And Satan comes along and, and tempts us and, and makes us think about the bad, which we're, trying, which we're supposed to have forgotten, and we forget about the good things. Us. And he condemns us and gets us to condemn ourselves. And God says, remember, remember, remember. The whole purpose of these three feasts were to remember you were delivered from Egypt. You used to be bondservants and now you're free. You wandered in the wilderness and I brought you into the promised land. When they cross the Red Sea, when we get there, they pick up 12 stones and they make a great big mound of stones and a big pillar. And why? Because God says, when your children see this and what, does those, what do those stones mean? You can tell them that's when God brought us out of captivity into the promised land. We need those markers in our life that say, this is what God has done for me. Not just what has he done for the Old Testament, not what has he done for the New Testament. Those are important. But we also need to be able to look and say, this is what God has done for me. This is how he has been good in my life. And go forward from there. Because it's easy to forget what he's done. And that leads us down the wrong path. And going back to your question about somebody who gets into sin eventually, if they're really one of God's children and they're living in sin, they'll come back to him, repent and come back. But if you know them in the middle of that time when they're living in that sin, you'll look at them, say they're not saved. And again, this is why we need to be so careful that we don't judge 
one another in their, in their spiritual way. We encourage one another. We, we encourage them to get in the Bible. We encourage them to get to church. We encourage them to talk about godly things. But don't sit there and judge them. And I've said this. If anybody had known me during the three years that I had walked away from church, even though I wasn't you know, roaring into sin, they would have probably said, well, you know, this guy's not saved. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't read his Bible. But yet, I knew I was before. <laughs> I knew I was even in the middle of it. And then God brought, brought me back into relationship with him and been, been with him ever since. So we need to be careful. And this is one thing I share with people. How are people going to know you in heaven? Especially somebody like me who's moved around a lot. Okay? There's people who know me from years ago when I was just barely you know, walking with God to those who know me when I was making mistakes and still to those who know me today when I'm talking to people and teaching and all these other things. So how do you know somebody? How do, you know, where do you know them from? How, how, what age will they be? What, you know, where will they be spiritually? Yeah. That's all up to God to figure out. That's how for him to figure out. I think he's going to take our best. I think, like, there's going to be so many people up there. It's like, you know, how can you find anybody if it's for Christ? Well, we may have to introduce ourselves to everybody. And we won't have the shyness anymore. If you're shy, you won't have any problem talking to the people in heaven. So, who knows? Uh, One pastor preached a message on, he he thought heaven would be just us swapping testimonies in heaven for, for a long time in eternity. Going up to people and hearing how they got saved and how God delivered, you know, no, worked with them, and you know, and when I heard that, it sounded kind of neat because one of the things I love to hear is people's testimony. How did you come to God? How is He? How has He moved in your life over your lifetime? It is fun to listen to people share their testimony, and I love that. So when He said that, I'm going, that would be kind of a neat, <laughs> neat thing. Go up in heaven and start swapping, swapping stories about how what God did to you. It did for you and, and your testimony and how you got there. Now, whether that's going to be the case or not, I don't, I don't know. But I could picture it. Yeah, I could picture that, you know, talking to somebody and have them give what God has done for them. Because one thing about it is, even for those who do not think that God has done a lot in their life, when they get to heaven and God shows them everything he's done for them, they're going to be shocked at how much God has done for them. Because God is working in all of our lives all the time, protecting us from things that we're not even sure that we got protected from because we didn't because we got protected, delivering us out of issues that we get ourselves into, giving us opportunities to share the gospel. He's going to show us those opportunities we shared the gospel without even knowing that we shared the gospel. And we talked about that, you know, when you do the right thing at the right time and people are watching you and it impacts their life. And there's lots of people. I've heard a lot of testimonies where that's what their testimony. I watched this Christian. I watched that Christian. And I watched how they walked through the hard times of their life. Even though they didn't say a lot to them. They were touched by how that Christian walked through the tough times in their life. There's going to be times when you've walked through the tough times in your life. And you're going to see that people saw you, watched you. And it impacted them that you knew nothing about. And every bit of everything that it impact of that person coming to Christ will be rewarded. God is going to be good and he's the one that can know who, who rewarded that person. The little bit of money you give to a missionary or a missionary organization that gets used somewhere, God will track it and know how you, your money impacted somebody's life in that. So we just want to be aware that God knows what's going on. You will know whether you know God. I, I'm perfectly sure that you will know one of the things I will tell people, 
you have something in your life that has changed into a new creation when you got saved, then you can know as well. When I got saved, God changed numerous things in my life. The biggest one was my temper. He took that completely away from me. There was a change. Now, if somebody comes to me and they say, nothing changed at all in my life when I got saved at all. Okay, I didn't get a love for the Bible. I didn't get a love for the church. I didn't get a love for God's people. No sin was taken out of my life. Then I'm going to have to say, you might want to look at your life a little closer and make sure that you made a real decision for him. Uh, if you can point to something that's changed in your life, now, some people point to their change in their life and everything changed you know, in, their, in their life overnight. That wasn't me. I didn't have that big a change. It took a long time for a lot of my changes. But he did change the temper. He did give me a love for his word. He did give me a love for you know, being with his people. We look at it and say, God, what did you change in my life when I came to you? And this is the one thing I look at when I'm trying to say, when somebody says, do you think I'm saved? Well, I look and say, what has God changed in your life? You know, how have you changed from what you were to who you are? The most important thing when you look at this, if you, and this is one of the things I usually do at the beginning of each year, on the, on, on the beginning of the year message, is encourage people, look back over the last year. Are you closer to God now than you were a year ago? And this is important for us. If we can see that growth, there are certain people in the church that I've watched for four years, and I look at them and say, God is growing them and I am in that 90% range that I'm pretty sure that these people are saved because I've watched the growth, the spiritual growth in them over time. But it all comes down to this matter of most people when they stand before God will know whether they're saved, you know, they'll, you'll know. I mean, I, I know that I know that I know that I know that I am saved. Why? Because I know God and I know the love he's put into my life and I've watched him make the changes in my life and guide and lead me. I have absolutely no doubt. If I was to get to heaven and God said, oh, if I never knew you, I would be so surprised because he's talked to me so frequently that I would go, well, you've talked to me an awful lot for not knowing me. There are people like that I have met that you know, just don't have a relationship with them. They're following rules. They're following regulations. They're following they're basically being religious. And religious is following a set of rules. And there are a lot of people that do that. I've got to go to church every week because that is my duty for God. I've got to read my Bible every day because that's my duty for God. I want to read my Bible. I want to be with God's people. I want to know God. So this is the difference on how do you know that you know? Because God is there. He is, he is the one that is in you, with you. Because there are certain people you look at and you say, well, I don't know if they know God, and they may know God greatly. They just don't have the emotional, you know, they're very analytical and very matter-of-fact, and they don't show emotion. There's other people that show emotion all the time, you know, and that, and that may or may not mean that they're saved. It just means <laughs> that's who they are. And God teaches us, be joyful, be happy, praise and for some people, that praise is going to be displayed in different ways. Some people love to sing, and they will sing at the drop of a hat. Other people, if you try to get them to sing, it's like pulling their teeth out without anesthesia. You know, they're going to fight you at every moment of it. You know, I'm not praising God. It's just not in me. That does not necessarily mean they're not saved. It's just, it's not, they don't feel comfortable doing it. Now, they probably should because God says to do it, but...
But we need to be able to look and say, the only one we can absolutely look at is ourself. God, do I really know you? And let him talk to you and express, who, express that position. And there, I will say, even having said that, I think it's good to have some doubt as to whether you're saved sometimes because then you have to analyze and say, God, do I know you? Not doubt that takes you off, into, <laughs> off away from him, but just that, God, am I really where I'm supposed to be? Am I growing? Am I moving forward with you? And this is very important. If we are his child, he is going to have us grow. And we will grow spiritually. So there has to be areas where we are maturing. If somebody is sitting in a church doing the same thing 30 years later that they did when they first walked into a church, there's a problem. They probably have a problem with their relationship with God because they should grow. In some area, they should grow. And that area should generate service for God, at least in that one area of their life. Uh, and this is not to say that everybody's going to be doing the same service. Everybody's going to be the same person because that is not what's going to happen. And I've said it over and over. I believe that every single person should be doing something for God. What that something is, I can't tell you with, that's between you and God, but you need to do something. It may be witnessing and, and, and sharing the gospel. It may be praying. It may be giving super abundant gifts because that's your, your gift is, is in giving. It may be simply cleaning the church or cleaning the, cleaning the parking lot or you know, whatever it might be. God will give you something. And sometimes we've got to be careful because some of the greatest workers in the church are the ones that are on their knees as prayer warriors. And there's a lot of people who claim to be prayer warriors, but you never, you'd ask them to pray and none of their prayers ever get answered. They, they may be trying to tell people they're prayer warriors, but they're not. And then there are prayer warriors that their prayers get answered. When they, when they, when they get on their knees or they bow their head, heaven is moved at their prayers. And most people will never know who they are because they're the silent, the, the, their gift is very silent in the church. But it's very important. We look at our own life not at others. Jesus said, you know, why are you trying to pull the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a beam in your own eye? And he's talking about a little, little piece of sawdust as opposed to a two-by-four sticking out of your eye when you get into the, the Greek on that. You know, and, and it's like, here, let me help you as you're knocking their head off with the, with the beam coming out of your eye. Let me get into your eye and pick that little, little splint, uh, speck of dust out. We need to be looking mostly at ourselves to the point where very small percentage it goes to others. That doesn't mean we don't help others, we don't advise others, especially if we get to know them. Because if we truly love somebody, we're going we're gonna to speak into their life a little bit, but it's going to be from love. And all of us have been approached by somebody in our lifetime, probably by somebody that loves us. And we've also been approached by people who, you know, it's like, uh, you don't, I don't want you to talk to me at all about my life. I don't... <laughs> You know, you have no reason. You don't love me. You don't, you don't care about me. You're just being judgmental. We've all been approached probably by both sides of the coin, so we know what, we're, what I'm talking about. You know, there's certain people that come up to you and go, oh, no, I don't want to. They're just going to sit here and tell me about how bad I am and this and that or the other thing. And then there's others like when they talk to you, which isn't often, it's like, oh, this person really cares. I want to listen to this person. All right, let's go ahead and bow. And did not get this chapter finished. <laughs> 
Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we had to come before you. Lord, we thank you that you love us and care for us. Lord, we ask all the time that you challenge us to look at our life to make sure that we are truly your child, that we are truly in relationship with you, and that you love us so much that you will, you will speak to us and let us know that. Lord, if there's anybody that's listening to this that doesn't know you, we ask that you convict them of their sin, that they are a sinner, that you deserve punishment, and have them repent and come back to you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.